Hello, everyone, and welcome to Throughline to the Fourth Sector, where we're exploring fourth sector capitalism and impact investing as an invitation to innovation that builds the future economy that works for everyone. I'm your host, Phil Dillard, founder of Throughline Networks. In this episode, we feature a conversation with Marcus Silverberg, founder of Block Solutions OY, a Finland-based company specializing in building material innovation for affordable and sustainable housing. Hailing from Helsinki, Finland, Marcus is an international serial entrepreneur with a background in the large-scale production technology sector. He's also chairman of the board of Up North Investment Group. In this episode, Marcus talks about solving the world's housing problem and creating thousands of jobs while simultaneously fighting climate change. He provides interesting insight into what it takes to be a successful serial entrepreneur outside the United States. To learn more about Marcus's work, visit blocksolutions.com. And to learn more about our work at ThruLine Networks, visit throughlinenetworks.com. You can find links for both companies in the show notes. Now sit back and enjoy the conversation with Marcus Silverberg, founder of Block Solutions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the ThruLine to the Fourth Sector podcast. I'm your host, Phil Dillard, here today with Marcus from Block Solutions. Marcus, how are you doing today? Oh, just wonderful. Just wonderful. Happy to be here. Happy to have you with us. Thanks for making the time and coming to us all the way from Finland. Let's just jump into it. We know we want to talk a little bit about you before we talk about your company and how you got into doing such amazing things in the world. So let's just start with a little bit of a simple question. When people ask you, who are you? What do you do? How do you describe what you do? Well, actually, I'm a father of three children. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. I would describe that we're trying to change the world the way we can do it. We're trying to make a better uh, livelihood and trying to make the things that we do more environmentally friendly as much as possible. You know, it's amazing how many people are inspired by their kids in the, in this. Have you always been inspired as a father in what you do in your profession? Because I know you're an inventor and a designer and engineer. Can you tell us a little bit about the roles you've had before this and how they prepared you for this company? Well, actually, I used to be one of those magnets trying to to solve everything in the world. And uh, but I was working in the industry, let's say construction industry before. I was working top-level executive roles in Europe before, but then I had a few companies. Actually, in the long run with my wife, we had almost 28 different companies, which we have had during our lifetime. And that's when I tried, let's say, getting off the loop and trying to do something more with more impact. And that's why I stepped down from those corporate roles and started to do block solutions. And you have a really interesting background that way and a really interesting relationship with your wife, which I find amazing and refreshing. Can you tell us a little bit about what your expertise was, what your discipline was, what your training was, and then how you transitioned that into building multiple businesses with your spouse? I've been always an inventor, let's say. In Finland, we're quite good at inventing new things and uh, trying to make life easier. Basically, I'm a civil engineer to my training. I was actually studying also electrical engineering and also done an, an uh, 
MBA on international business. Also trying to cope with everything. Started working as a private entrepreneur when I was 22. Took my first loan for that and started actually with a hardware store in the beginning. And then gradually grew up the business to become, let's say, global. At some point, I just uh, sold the companies to bigger companies and then stepped off. And uh, now I'm doing what my heart tells me to do. I often ask a question that says, why does your work really matter to you? And you said your kids and what your heart tells you to do. Can you share a little bit about any sort of people who've influenced you in really making that shift from being a corporate guy or being an entrepreneur in a traditional business to something that really matters more to you? How did you make that shift? Well, in a way, my parents were also private entrepreneurs themselves, and I was working, looking at how they work. And of course, let's say it's not so easy to be a child for an entrepreneur. But then again, you get some liberties, but then you have obligations. We always took the children with us when we went to new companies and so on. And we told them what we're doing, especially when we founded Block Solutions and when they saw the impact that we're doing. So they are actually involved quite heavily also in everything what we do with Block Solutions. They want to be a part of what we do. They see the impact and uh, they are gladly sharing everything what we're doing all around the world. And that's why they are also co-owners in the company. So does that make it different than previous businesses that you started or in working as part of a corporation? How does it feel differently to have your family willingly engaged and excited about being co-owners of this business? It's a totally different ballgame over here. I really love having them around. Of course, they're, let's say, in their early 20s, all of them. But it's, it's so nice to see them grow into the company and how they would like to improve the company, what they would like to do. And that's just drives me so, let's say, proud of what they're doing. And that gives me so much boost also to be all around the world and trying to make this their infinity company in future. Yeah, that's a really important thing. The concept of an infinite business and the concept of a new version of a family business. And I, and I think for those who don't know you, when they see the picture of Block Solutions on the Facebook page or on the website, and they see you and Sana and the kids in the pictures and the videos, there's to me seems to be real passion, real joy in those pictures, that you're doing something together, you're doing something that you love, and you're doing something that matters. And I think right now, in a place in the world where people are looking for things that matter, for things of meaning, and for connection to other folks, you guys have something that's really that's really special. And it's one of the reasons we I really wanted to try and talk with you. Before we go on to talk a little bit more about the company, can you tell me, tell everyone, a little bit about Finland about Finnish culture and why being an independent entrepreneur might be unique or special in the culture and, and how that matters to your family? Well, in a way, when you think about the Finnish culture, we are, let's say, a little bit drawn back compared to the normal people in that sense. We keep to ourselves, but then we really respect each other. You have to say that we're in the fifth uh, year in a row. We're the happiest people in the world. I don't know why, but it must be something. It must be that uh, it's so cold outside that we care about the people who we live with. And I get the power from the support of the community 
will think the same way. And maybe we just want to support each other. That's how it is. But being an entrepreneur in this kind of, let's say, uh, climate is not so easy. It's not like in U.S., let's say everybody wants to become an entrepreneur and so on. But we are those guys that are trying to fight Finland to the world atlas in that sense. I can totally appreciate that from having come to learn the Finnish culture. I worked with a guy in a consulting firm when I first met Finns. And for business, I've been to Finland now seven times for different conferences and, and such. And not only are the people who, traditional Finns who say that, but people who've emigrated there have shared the ethos and shared the happiness and the care in other folks. And I think it permeates into the business and part of the why and the how um, you're doing what you're doing. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about block solutions. The part of this segment really is, what did you see that changed you? And the first question I often start with is, what was the point where you knew that you needed to build this company? There's one place, actually, it's a country called Haiti. That was the thing that sparked, that made the ignite the sparkle in that sense. There was an earthquake in 2010 in Haiti, and there were so many people killed during the, the crisis over there. And there was a tsunami who flushed away everything. The infrastructure was flushed away. And the biggest problem what the different NGOs and uh, like United Nations had was that they couldn't get the help on site to the shorelines over there because the infrastructure was flushed away. So actually a lot of people died because the helpers couldn't get on site. So that's when actually United Nations wanted to have a solution for uh, crisis management so that they could fly in, for example, building components so that they can build hospitals, mortuaries, temporary shelters, and so on. But the existing solutions were so bulky and so heavy that they couldn't get on site. There were, uh, let's say, uh, tens of thousands of helpers just waiting to get over there, but they just couldn't get there. And when they got there, they couldn't do anything. And due to this, so numerous lives were lost. And that's, that was actually the igniting spark, which, which uh, made me to start to design the product and to come up with a solution for the United Nations. And because your business is a family business and there's lots of folks who are engaged, was there something personal that your family talked about in this that made it a little different? In a way, I was working for the construction industry and I was actually heading one of the biggest bike manufacturers in Europe as a commercial director. I've been always having a passion to help people and trying to solve problems. And especially when I was reading about the carbon emissions of the existing ways of building and also the climate change, which we actually see over here in Finland, which I would like to prevent. I would like my children to have the same winters that I was having when I was a child, having snow everywhere all around over here. Now we barely get the snow over here during the winters that we face. And the extreme temperatures differences what we're getting in the world, it is actually what we relate to climate change. And if we do it the, the old-fashioned way, it's going to, let's say, be a big impact if we want to start building the conventional ways or if we want to change that into a new, more environmental way of building, for example. 
Outstanding. I get it. So the impact that you want to deliver to the people you serve, not only is to address something that can have fast building in response to an emergency, but also something that is environmentally friendly in a way that helps address the climate challenges that we're seeking today. Can you talk a little bit about how Block Solutions does that? Yeah, actually, I'm just going to go for the fundamentals of Block Solutions. According to United Nations, a staggering amount of 3 billion people will need affordable housing by the end of 2030. We're never, ever going to be able to be sufficiently deploying these houses for people. That would mean that we would need to build 600 million houses in just a few years. And of course, we understand that's never going to be the case. We can just say that, hey, it's not going to happen, but we can make our part. Now, for example, if we use concrete, concrete is a very good material, but we should try to find solutions where we should actually minimize the use of concrete and find solutions to build, let's say, other structure with the blocks, for example. It's just an option what people can use. When we build a square meter wall, so about 10 square feet, the carbon footprint of a concrete wall is about 200 kilograms, roughly. Compare that with the block. It is only 1.8% of the carbon footprint compared to concrete. So those are the things that we cannot build just alone with the blocks, but we could minimize the amount of concrete that we're using building partitioning walls, exterior walls, and uh, let's say a one or two-story building just with the blocks. We're utilizing the recycled plastics that is laying around in nature, especially in African and uh, many Asian countries. We're utilizing that, collecting the waste plastics from the nature, transforming that into pellets. And from the pellets, we, with injection molding machines, we produce these building blocks and it's, it's like uh, adult-sized Legos, we can build a house in two hours. So that is the change that we want to make. And by doing this, we're also employing a lot of people on the local level because these factories are always locally operated and locally owned. So can you talk about that a little bit more because it's a really interesting component of it. I would expect that when people hear changing building materials that make it faster to build a building, some would say, wait a minute, what about the skilled labor people who are building the buildings? But what I'm, if I'm hearing you right, there was a challenge because we need to build a lot. We need to build them affordably. We need to build them quickly. And the business model for Block Solutions is not only to provide the need for that, but also to create more value in the ecosystem. Can you talk about how you do that? Yeah, so the point is really that when we establish a licensed factory in a country or a town, wherever, we first find a suitable partner on, on where to partner up with. And the local partner then starts making a feasibility study and checks out if there's a raw material available in the market, recycled plastics. At some point, we can actually use all organic fibers also as a raw material, but that's just not in the first phase. It's going to be a little bit later in the process. But the thing is, we are going to uh, enable people to start collecting waste, so employing people over there. I'm mainly now focusing on the emerging market at this point, but letting people collect maybe 20, 30 kilograms of plastics, bringing that to the factory, we will recycle the plastics and create the blocks out of those. 
which means that when we talk about the waste pickers, we're talking about the people who are running the factory. We're actually talking about the people who will then erect the houses. We're talking about creating jobs for 50 to 100 people per one factory. And that is quite big. That's a really great point. 50 to 100 jobs created per factory. You put a really clear message when people say technology innovation creates new jobs, you showcase it really well here. I appreciate that. And can you share with folks where you're putting these factories? We have now nine factories in the pipeline. So we're supposed to deliver nine factories, but up today we're getting five factories to Indonesia, Jakarta, Lombok, Sumatra. Then we're getting factories to Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, Namibia, Morocco, Egypt, and uh, there are actually projects that are going also to Brazil and Haiti. Awesome. And uh, back to Haiti, where it all started. Yeah, uh, that's the is, point. <laughs> and, and these are all places that are you know, very different from Finland. Last question in this, in this segment is really about what you've learned and what different sectors of the economy are. We talk about there being four sectors, the public sector, the private sector, the NGO sector and this mission-driven for-benefit capitalism sector, this fourth sector. Can you talk about key lessons you've learned, important lessons you've learned uh, from the working with the different sectors and getting this done, or the role of profit, capitalism, and policy in this work? Even though we're, I'd say, a company with values, we do also understand for a company to be sustainable, it also needs to be profitable. That's the only way that you can be sustainable. Of course, I really respect what the public sector is doing. Also respect what the NGOs are doing and, and so on. But to be sustainable in the long run, it needs to be a privately held company that is producing the blocks for the community, employing people over there, creating jobs over there. But for the entrepreneur, because we're talking with our licensees, always an entrepreneur over there on the local level. So they need to get the food on their table also, all the employees that they are creating jobs for. And in the long run, they are, of course, they need to develop the whole process. The thing is, especially in Africa, I faced the situation where a lot of, let's say, big funders, U.S., European Union, and so on, they're donating, for example, houses for people, but they do not involve the people in the process. So they are just donating houses over there with 100 flats over there, and nobody wants to live in those houses because they see something wrong with the system. But when the people are involved, when they self-get to build the houses over there, they adapt to that, they value it, and that's why they want to go for a better future for themselves. And what is important for safety for a family than their own home, as small as it could be, so that they can start really growing, what we call be the best you can be. That is our motto for those people. So trying to, on a social level, try to grow. So you're working locally with the folks and that's what the localization about is about. That's what the customization is about. And if I'm hearing you right, you're saying that often philanthropy is done from, done to, as opposed to done with. And that's where sometimes the NGOs run into trouble. Yeah, and the thing is what we did, for example, in Lombok in Indonesia, we involve the community over there. They built their own school over there. We didn't go there to build that school. No, we trained the locals on how to build the school. And when the locals saw how easy it is to build with the blocks, the schools over there, 
they wanted to start building houses for themselves over there. The kids that were in the school, every single morning, they were bringing plastics for us so that they could have, let's say, enough recycled plastics for their families to build their own homes, which were destroyed in the same earthquake. So this is the thing that I want the people to realize that this is the contribution that we want to give to the communities. So it sounds like not only are they engaged in the development so they get what they need, they are also inspired and can start contributing even more in unexpected ways. Has this led to any sort of new business model or any other surprises about what's next in Lombok? We're building these schools, quite many of them. Now we need to build 200 schools. They said that they don't want to have just one team building the schools now when they got the training. For every single school that we are building those schools, we're getting a new team. They want to have new teams to come over there to build the schools because then they can learn on how to build with, with the blocks. It is so easy. They said that when we have rehearsed on to build a school, we can now build our own homes with the blocks. So it sounds like they have already decided that they want to get more people trained on how to build the schools so they could think about things that they can do differently in building their homes. It's almost building a new building sector or a new innovation sector. Absolutely. Absolutely. Outstanding. Let's take a quick pause to talk about one of my favorite companies, Caspian Studios. Caspian Studios is a podcast as a service company. They make podcasts for B2B companies like Dell, Oracle, Snowflake, VMware, Asana, and many more. In fact, they make this very podcast. They are the best marketing investment I've ever made. If your company wants to start a podcast or video series, the only choice is Caspian Studios. Look, making podcasts is a ton of work, prep, interviews, scheduling, recording, audio engineering, publishing, the list of tasks never ends. But if you use Caspian Studios, they do all the heavy lifting for you and deliver with world-class quality. They also build the audience by running growth marketing campaigns. Don't waste the time trying to make it yourself. They'll get your podcast live in 60 days. The team is super accessible and friendly and can brainstorm ideas with you for free. Make your podcast rise above the noise. Head over to CaspianStudios.com to learn more. And now, back to the interview. When you go to Haiti, when you go to Lombok, you see earthquakes and tsunamis. You go to the Philippines after a tsunami. You see people will re rebuild as best that they can. For you, what's the heartbreaking part of the, the issue that you saw there? And what happens if we do nothing? We want to give people opportunities. That is the main issue that is driving the driving force for block solutions. They can choose the path that they want to take. If they need to have the food on the table for every single day, we will give them the option. Uh, it's not much money that we can give actually for every single kilogram that they bring to the factory. But in return, they will get enough food for the everyday table. And in return, we have now closed some deals with Danone, for example, a Coca-Cola company, and they're actually donating the same amount of money into a plastic bank account. So when they start uh, bring us, for example, 30 kilograms of plastics, we will give 10 cents for every kilogram that they bring to us. So they will get $3 every single day to get to provide food for the people, for their own families. That is actually three times more 
than we they usually make during a day. On top of that, for example, Danone or Coca-Cola, they're doubling it up. So they are donating the same $3 every single day for that uh, particular person. And that is actually stored in a plastic bag. And with that money, they can, at the end of the year, buy the blocks for their own home. So instead of, let's say, being idle over there, trying to survive every single day, they can, during one year, make so much actually savings into the uh, bank account that they can build their own home. This is super important and, and really great. When I was in the Philippines recently, I saw people who were going down to a building that was falling down and they were taking hammers and buckets, like paint buckets, and they were beating the cement into little bits and pieces, the concrete, and they're breaking it down at risk of the building falling down on them. You could see the rebar underneath and they were walking up these hills and they were breaking it into little pieces to make concrete to kind of slap together a home or slap together a walkway and and add on to the shanty shack that they're talking about. And in the same country, I saw people who were, you know, doing these play to earn video games. They're playing video games to earn money so that they go out and buy because they didn't have work. But what you're saying to me sounds like so smart and so real. I just had to recap it. People go out into the woods, they go to the beach, they grab plastic that was then polluting the environment. And they bring it to the factory so you could turn it into bricks. They get money for food. They get credit for plastics that's matched by the companies that are actually you know, creating the plastic as it's the most effective way to deliver their product. And they could take that and then buy their homes and improve their homes and their neighborhoods and their communities. And that, to me, is a great impact model. Yeah, I, I think that because that's the impact that we want to give. And the thing is, okay, it's totally okay for us that for they get enough blocks during that one year to build their own home over there. And if they want to do something else after that, it's totally okay with us because we've served our purpose for that family. And now when they have the safety of their own home, they can start focusing on other things. Maybe they can get a mortgage on the house. Maybe they can, the kids can go to school. And that is the point that we want to serve the community with. That's beautiful. That's really great stuff. And thanks so much for, for sharing that. I think it's super clear. Now, in executing that, it sounds simple, but there are some challenges for running an efficient organization. Can you talk a little bit about how you structure your organization to be successful and how you learned a little bit over time, whether something is working or it's not working? Of course, the thing is, Unfortunately, in a lot of the, let's say, in the markets, there is a pressure from different kind of thugs and so on. So the thing is, when they see that there's an earning model, for example, for somebody, uh, they will create these kind of groups and they create these plastic mafias over there also. But we have made some restrictions on that. A person can only bring in the maximum amount of 30 kilograms per day, and that money goes to that specific guys or ladies. We're not allowing, let's say, any intermediaries going over there to to have people collecting waste plastics and then take a lorry, bring it to the factory and get the funds from that. No, we need to be very strict on this and we need to be transparent with this. So it is also a learning curve for every single one of us. It is just mind troubling when you can hear the stories of people, how they're being misused over there. 
in these countries, are there labor unions that are in some more, more developed countries, or is this all kind of somewhat organized or disorganized crime? It is disorganized crime, that's what I would say. Let's say if you have to fight for your food, that is the problem. But we give them viable options to do that. And, and we try to, with our examples, trying to solve those fundamental problems over there. I know that we're just uh, a, a small, tiny droplet in the ocean, but trying to do our share. Yeah, every part matters. And if people can effectively build some of their homes in interesting ways, and I encourage people to you know look at the show notes or go to the Block Solutions websites and you'll see some of these designs. It makes a big difference. I still remember when I was in the Navy and walking into some one of the shanty neighborhoods in Kenya where people just had cement blocks and wood that had washed up on the beach and things that were slapped together. And if we want to elevate humans to, to be living in the abundance that we know that we have for all of them. This is this sounds seems like a, a great way to get there. And I appreciate what you're doing. And especially when you think about the circumstances that they have over there. Uh, living in a sea container, for example, when there's, let's say, plus 100 degrees Fahrenheit outside is 140 degrees inside the container. And uh, they're supposed to live over there. That's a really important point because a lot of times we talk about how people in the global south are more vulnerable to climate change. You talked about what you see in Finland. And when I was there, people joked that it was still cold, there's less snow, but you still don't want to lose your culture. You, you don't want to lose the permafrost in Russia, but you also don't want your country to be washed away or to be so hot that it's unlivable. And from creating and designing structures that are low cost, but give people a better resource than living in a, a shipping container. I have to say that low cost doesn't mean low quality. It is actually a very high quality product. It's just made the other way. That is the point. Absolutely. I do understand that people have their doubts about living in a plastic house. But then when they see that the house is actually looking just the way the normal house would look like, it's just made in a fraction of the cost and just a minimal time compared to normal way of building. So building a house like we did in Lombok, the family who lost their home in the earthquake, we built the house in one day. They moved in the same night into the house. The other thing is, if there's another earthquake, if there's another hurricane, first, it's designed to be more stable. Second, even if something happened, let's say there's a landslide and it knocks away the building, people could pick up the pieces grind them back into pellets and then turn them into 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 another building because you have the, the because you have the factory on site. Yeah, and most likely actually 90% of the blocks will remain intact. Right. So I mean all that seems to be a very smart innovation and leads to the impact that we're shooting for. So I'm very excited. I hope people are excited to, to learn more and I hope they go and take a look at the material, at the technical characteristics of the material and the designs of the homes and see what they might be able to do close to them. I got to shift to the final segment because I know we have, we're limited on time. We could probably keep you talking all day and we'd love it. But final segment, we take five minutes and we go quickly through our, our recap, our lightning round real quickly. Okay. But question one, 10 years from now, what does success look like to you? Success in my eyes looks like when we get people out of poverty. That is the main issue over here that we're trying to do. And of course, that means that we will have a few hundred factories all around in, in at the globe. But it means that you can see the smiling faces for people who haven't had the smiles 
any day in their past life. Outstanding. Super. Question number two. Right now, outside of your company, is there a project, program, campaign, or creation that ex inspires you? You inhabit that uh, participatory slum upgrading program is one of the things that we need to try to, uh, let's say, get into public. There are 27 slums in the world that have about 27 million people in. We're trying to get them out of the slums, at least trying to upgrade the slums that they have over there. It's made from tin roofing. So let's say the living conditions are substandard, really substandard. And we're trying to also solve the problem in Haiti, in Port-au-Prince. We are going to relocate one and a half million people from the Delta Air in Port-au-Prince just to give the people the option because it seems that the intensity of earthquakes is increasing now in the Gulf over there, which means that we're just expecting it, it can happen any single time now that there's going to be a major earthquake and with the tsunami over there, and it is the lowest end of infrastructure over there, they would die. We need to do something with that, and fast, actually. That's, gosh, it's so touching, right? And when I think about it, thinking about people living in, in such shameful conditions, when there's something that we can do about it, and people say, you know, do well by doing good, make money by making people's lives better, safer, and oh my God. That's the point. It can be profitable, but it doesn't mean that we're going to rip anybody off. That's what real capitalism really is. That's what capital in the hands of the people. That's what free enterprise and innovation, free hands of the markets. That's what it's supposed to be enabled to do. I love that goal. If we can take 27 million people out of slums and get them into housing that is, a, is, that is safe and clean and efficient and has power and has uh, the ability to have has clean power, maybe it's solar, has clean cookstoves, maybe it's from waste gas, or maybe it's electric, has clean water. How much more productive can they be? How much more can they be contributing to the society? How much better is humanity? That's the point. Well, I think we're the enablers with our technology. We can do, as I said, be the best you can be. That's what we want to provide the people. Amen. Amen. I'm glad people get to hear this from you, Marcus. I just love what you're doing. Okay, question number three. Um, what are the most important things that individuals can do to lead to a better future? Think out of the box. The thing is, can you imagine yourself living in a house that is made from plastics, which is more environmentally friendly, which is sustainable, and not just to think that the old-fashioned way I know that the construction industry is very, very old-fashioned. You have to remember that I was a building inspector in Germany in my, let's say, early, early 20s. But let's say, come on, it is so damn boring and uh, time, a waste of time, actually. Yeah, I could see that, right? When I first heard about it, I said, what? If anybody's hearing this and you're skeptical, see it, to believe it. Innovation is really smart. Sometimes we do things the same way all the time because we've always done them that way, not because it's the best way to do them. And this is a great innovation. Okay, question number four. What's the most important thing that governments and NGOs can do to lead to a better future? So when they make new plans for future, they should also support these new technologies to come by, especially when it comes to environmental friendly solutions talking about the construction, energy, clean water, 
We have so brilliant minds in the world that it's a scarcity of what's available in the market. But it is the large corporates who are actually controlling on what is going into the market. So we need to be bold. We need to take active steps to enable these new technologies to to come by. I'm not going to tell you any names, but for example, the company, when the, the construction sector saw our product, they just wanted to buy us off and put it in buried into the <laughs> ground so that we wouldn't come with the technology. It's, it was too disruptive for them. And that's why we need infinite companies, right? That's, that's why we so need true. companies that aren't in a traditional venture capital cycle or whichever for when doing impact. They need to be able to resist that capital that's going to put the innovation on the shelf and have a pathway toward people investing in them and people making them grow. And it's good to have investors, but they can be impactful investors. And I'm pretty sure that the people are now becoming much more aware what the impact investing is. Of course, we also do need investment into the company. That is how we're going to scale it as fast as possible. But those are the ones who can, let's say, maybe tolerate a little bit uh, lower yield on uh, actually investment payback time can be a little bit longer. But in the long run, they can sleep their nice nights very well without any burdens. Back to your point. You can't put a price on your children having snow and having the culture that you grew up with so that you continue what made Finland special, what made a unique place in the world. Can't put a price on that, right? But you can put a price on how much your heating costs or your cooling costs change, or your labor costs, or the recovery from emergencies or from catastrophes, and on and on and on and on and on. So there is a changing financial metric that you're showing a clear linkage to in in what you're what you're doing here. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Last question. I, mean, I, I kind of want to ask a question about policies of governments, but I think we're just kind of town and I need to respect it. Maybe we'll come back a little bit and dig into that. But final thought. Are there any final thoughts you want to share? with our listeners that as you reflect on this conversation that you'd want them to take away with? Think about the future. The thing is, we can still change the future of our uh, children, our grandchildren, but the time to act is really now. We're so focused just on uh, annual growth and so on. It's important. I understand that. But the thing is, we can also do a sustainable growth, which is in line with what our Mother Earth can cope with. That's a great thing to part with and um, really appreciate you sharing all of your wisdom, insight, and accomplishments. Big fan, big advocate, obviously a partner. Look forward to seeing amazing things can happen. Thanks so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to share with us who you are, what you're about, and how Block Solutions is making a positive impact on the world, Marcus. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you all for joining us on this episode. We hope to see you again real soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Throughline to the Force Sector. I'm your host, Phil Dillard. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and tell a friend. To learn more about the Force Sector economy, visit throughlinenetworks.com. That's T-H-R-U-L-I-N-E networks.com. Thanks again, and we hope to have you with us in the next episode. Hey, everyone. Thanks for being part of the movement of human evolution that we call fourth sector capitalism. The fourth sector is a space where companies operate 
at the intersection of purpose and profit, where companies are intentionally built to deliver both impact and financial returns. As a complement to this podcast, we'll be out speaking both in live and virtual conferences and events around the world. Upcoming planned speaking events include World Rainforest Day Global Summit on June 22nd, that's virtual, New York Climate Week in September, that's live, Nexus Global Conference and COP27, both in October. You can find more information in the show notes and on our website and LinkedIn pages. We hope to see you there.